Well, the way you start isn't nearly as important as the way you finish. That's true in lots of things. Perhaps you've seen the start of the City to Surf running race, uh, when a few runners want their moment of glory, so they sprint off from the start line and they make it a few hundred metres before they collapse in exhaustion. But at least they can say they were leading the race, for a couple of minutes anyway. But the way you start isn't nearly as important as the way you finish. It's like restoring furniture. Uh, some of you know that's a hobby of mine. Uh, to find something old, then strip it back, repair it, and then uh, return it to its original condition. But one thing I've noticed is how often people sell things that they've started to restore, but then they never finish. They find other interests, or they run out of enthusiasm, or they realise that the, uh, the project was too difficult for them. They started well, but they didn't finish well. Now, what's true in life is true in a church as well. It's no good starting with a burst of enthusiasm and energy and growth, but then in churches for fights and disharmony to destroy things. Or churches that just change their priorities or, or their motivation. And then the church that started well just runs out of energy or direction and eventually you turn off the lights and lock the doors. How you start isn't nearly as important as how you finish. And that's a lesson we can learn from the Corinthian church. Because as we look at Acts chapter 18 and the first days of this church that Paul plants, in lots of ways it's got everything going for it. It starts strong. But then we're going to fast forward a few years to when Paul writes a letter to them and warns them that they're in danger of finishing badly. Now, by that stage, the church, it's large, it's full of mature, gifted Christians. Now, that's great, but there's a pride and a disunity. And the danger is, it's all just going to collapse into a mess. Acts 18 is uh, halfway through Paul's missionary journey. Uh, his second missionary journey is when he first jumped from Asia into Europe. Uh, in chapter 16, he lands in Neapolis, in the region of Macedonia. Uh, that's in Europe, and then he travels down through Philippi, chapter 17. Uh, he's in Thessalonica, then Berea, and then in Athens. Uh, and so chapter 18, Paul arrives in Corinth. Uh, it's about 100 kilometres further west from Athens. It was a great commercial city. Uh, its location was strategic. It was on one of the great crossroads of the ancient world, which meant it was a centre for business and trading. At its peak, its population was nearly three quarters of a million. It was far bigger than Athens. It sat right at the top uh, of a narrow belt of land called an isthmus, uh, and it linked the Peloponnesian Peninsula to the south with mainland Greece uh, to the north. Uh, this uh, isthmus was five kilometres wide, uh, separating the Gulf of Corinth uh, to the west, the Aegean Sea to the east. And so literally this city was at the, the centre of the four points of the compass. All the land-based trading routes passed through it. But it also had safe harbours on both sides. 
uh, merchants and suppliers from all over the known world came to Corinth, by road or by boat. Now these days there's uh, a canal across the isthmus that joins both of those two seas. Finished in 1893, it's over six kilometres long, it's only 25 metres wide. Uh, Ships can travel from one sea to the other. And that's now, but in those days, the best they could do was haul these smaller boats across a purpose-built road called a Diolkos, uh, from one sea uh, across those five kilometres of land to the other sea on rollers, which was still quicker and easier than sailing all the way around. Now, because of its strategic position, Corinth was also incredibly wealthy. Large markets sold goods from all over Asia, Europe and Africa. There were statues, fountains and baths everywhere. There were large theatres that were built to entertain the prosperous citizens. But Corinth was also well known for immorality and idol worship. Uh, There was a large temple to Apollo in the centre of town and uh, on one of the mountains behind there was a shrine to Aphrodite or or to Venus, uh, the goddess of love. It said there were a thousand female slaves who served her. Uh, Corinth even had a verb named after it. Uh, To Corinthiadzomai meant to practice sexual immorality. And so that's Corinth. Uh, a huge population, uh, proud, cultured and wealthy, but wicked, pagan and immoral. Uh, perhaps if we were going to plant a church, we would have picked a different city. <clears throat> but what we'll see is that God had a very special plan for Corinth. Corinth is just the place to plant a church. And so just like a, a master gardener, God gives this this, uh, this new church, every advantage to grow well. So firstly, uh, the first advantage, Corinth has something that no other church up to this point has had. It has a mature core group. Uh, so look in verse 2, uh, uh, Romans, uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 2. There Paul met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went there to see them, because he was a tent maker as they were. He stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla, it's likely they were already Christians, uh, originally from Pontus, but then they'd moved to Rome. Quite probably they'd been part of the church there. Maybe they'd even helped to plant the church in Rome. But now they've ended up in Corinth because the Jews have been forced out of Rome. Now that may have seemed like bad news at the time for Aquila and Priscilla, but it turns out to be great news for Paul because they meet up in Corinth and they end up, he ends up staying with them and they work together making tents. Now that takes up Monday to Friday, but That's only to put food on the table. You see, his real work is what he does on Saturdays when he goes down to the synagogue, just like he's done in every other town, and he reasons with the Jews. He tries to persuade them to accept that Jesus is the Messiah. So there's the first advantage. Uh, This new church plant 
has the emotional and practical and physical and spiritual support of a core group for Paul, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, The second advantage is there in verse 5, Silas and Timothy join him. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us that uh, Silas and Timothy had brought financial aid, they'd brought money from the previous churches that Paul had planted just months before, uh, further uh, back in Europe. Now they help out with the day-to-day living expenses, so Paul doesn't have to work making tents. And so he can actually spend the whole week preaching about Jesus. Do you see that there in verse 5? Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Now that's the the way it works here uh, in this church. I get supported by you so that I can devote myself exclusively uh, to this work. Technically, I don't get paid, I get supported financially so I don't have to work for a living. Uh, It's a privilege to be able to tell people about Jesus but it's an even greater privilege to be supported by other people to do it. So can I just thank you for that? Uh, I certainly don't take that lightly. I realise what it means for you to give sacrificially and generously for God's work. Uh, Karen and I are very grateful uh, to God to be part of this church. Uh, But back to Paul. Even though he's at it full-time here in Corinth, his reception doesn't seem to be much better than it's been in other towns. The Jews still reject him. They're still abusive. So in verse 6, Paul shakes the dust off his clothes and he leaves them to their blindness and their ignorance. Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. Which he does. He starts meeting right next door, the house of Titius Justus, a Gentile Christian. But notice who else joined him. Verse 8, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptised. Paul's message gets through to some significant people. Uh, Crispus, who, who was the leader of the synagogue, Uh, and his whole family become Christians. So things have started well, but there's more to come. Uh, Advantage number three for our new church, God himself promises success and protection. Verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a dream. Do not be afraid, keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. And they're fascinating words, aren't they? Uh, they're an insight into God's plans. What a great encouragement they must have been for Paul, firstly, especially after the beatings he'd suffered in other places, no one's going to attack or harm you. Now that's some information about Paul's enemies. But there are also three more encouragements. Uh, Firstly, something to do, something for Paul, don't be afraid, keep speaking, don't be silent. And then the reason... Something about God, because I'm with you. Paul is not doing this on his own. God's Holy Spirit is with Paul. And in him, God's Spirit is guiding and strengthening and teaching and training. Now that's one of the big themes of the book of Acts. Uh, So we see it here again. 
But then there's something in the message about Paul's target audience. Do you see it? I have many people in this city. Now that's a fascinating insight into God's election about how God saves people. God's plan is that this church plant will be a success. He's chosen lots of people here to be his children. And all it is going to take is for Paul to keep speaking. And God's election will be effective. You see, election, the doctrine of election, is not a hindrance to evangelism. That's what some people think. It's actually a motivation to evangelism. Because evangelism is is simply searching out the people God has already chosen and is preparing. It may not seem to us to be the most effective and efficient way to to bring people to, to saving faith, but that's the way God does it. He chooses people and then calls his people to tell people. And then those chosen people believe. That's his plan. That was his plan in Corinth. And it's his plan for us here at Ashfield as well. And so, with that encouragement, Paul sticks at it. For another 18 months, verse 11 tells us. Now, that's the fourth advantage this church in Corinth has. 18 months is the longest Paul has stayed anywhere in the last few years. Normally, it's a few days or or, or some weeks, or a few weeks at the most. And then he leaves the work in the hands of locals or or some of his co-workers. But here he stays there for 18 months. Why? Because God has many people for him to reach. Now I think that's probably got to do with the strategic location of the city as well as its size. Uh, It's at the crossroads of so much trade, so many people passing through. People who, once they hear the message, could take it with them when they travel around or when they go home and perhaps start their own churches. Now, we don't know exactly how far things spread from Corinth, but it certainly does seem like a wise place for Paul to commit to for a long period of time. Well, the fifth advantage God gives this church uh, from verse 12 is Roman support. Uh, verse 12, the, the Jews bring Paul before the Roman proconsul Gallio uh, and try to get Paul punished. But even before the evidence can be presented, Gallio throws it out of court. Verse 14, he says it's got nothing to do with him. We can see that God is behind this. God is protecting Paul. And then just for a bit of poetic justice, instead of Paul being beaten up, for a change the crowd turns on Sosthenes, verse 17. Uh, He's the new synagogue ruler. Now, he gets beaten up, but Gallio also turns a blind eye to that. He's not interested in it. Now, these are all signs that a church God is planting is is doing well, that it's starting well. Well, the sixth advantage the Corinthians have comes a little bit later on when, when Paul moves on and Apollos comes as their follow-up pastor. Now follow along with me from verse 18. Uh, Paul heads down from Corinth to the coast at Kencray uh, and then he jumps across the Mediterranean to Ephesus, just follow the green line. Uh, he takes Aquila and Priscilla with him uh, and he leaves them in Ephesus. 
He stays a few days, then he heads to Caesarea, and then he finally makes it back uh, to his home base in Antioch. <clears throat> well, from verse 24, that's when Apollos joins the story. Uh, Apollos is originally from Alexandria, which is in northern Africa. He lands in Ephesus, where Priscilla and Aquila are, and they meet up with him. Look at verse 24. Uh, Apollos was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. He's intelligent. He's well-educated, he's full of enthusiasm, he's a great public speaker, he's a real asset. But he's misunderstood a few things about Jesus. And to his credit, when Priscilla and Aquila offer to point them out to him, he's got the humility to accept the help, the advice. Now that's not something that people like him are often good at. But have a look at verse 27. Now, here's where Corinth comes in. Remember, he's in Ephesus. Verse 27, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, now, Achaia, that's the province that Corinth is in, so he wants to go to Corinth. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. What a great follow-up to Paul, Apollos was, in Corinth, filling in, reinforcing what Paul had been uh, teaching, encouraging the Christians to maturity. It wasn't the same as church planning, uh, but it was still important. Uh, In his first letter to the Corinthian church, Uh, Paul puts it like this, Uh, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 5, What after all is Apollos and what's Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. Apollos and Paul, different personalities, different gifts. Uh, Paul starts the work, Apollos helps to make it grow but it's the same Lord who's doing it. So there we are, six benefits God provides to this church to grow well, a whole range of means to become mature. But remember what we said at the start, it's not how you start that counts, it's how you finish. Because you see, despite all those advantages, things at Corinth start to go bad. They turn against each other. And the whole church is at risk. Now when Paul hears about it, he writes them a letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos. 
And another, I follow Kephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? Do you see what they're doing in Corinth? They're dividing into teams. They're following one leader over another. But they've got it all wrong. Because the reality, Paul, Apollos and Peter, they're all on the same team. They're all following Jesus. They're all united. And when there are those sorts of divisions in a church, when there are people who are trying to stir up splits, it only means one thing. And Paul says in chapter 3, it means you're not the mature, gifted Christians you think you are, but you're actually just spiritual babies. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul says, Brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual, but as worldly, you're mere infants, babies in Christ. And the proof of it comes in verse 3. Since there's jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? That's not what Christians do, says Paul. That's what the world does. It's one thing to have factions in the Liberal Party or the Labor Party or the office or the tennis club, but not in the church. Paul goes on to say, verse 5, Apollos and I, we're just servants. We're not someone worth following and dividing over. We're just servants. God gives the growth. We just plant and water. Exactly like we saw back in Acts 18, Paul and Apollos are on the same team. They're not in competition. Now, the result of the teams meant that the whole body was suffering. Rather than church being a place where people are encouraged and supported and built up, rather than it being a family, it's a competition, it's a war zone. Now, that helps no one. It destroys people. Let's make sure we're not doing that. There are all sorts of leaders and groups here at our church. Home groups, elders, Sunday school, youth group, committee of management, different people leading the services from Sunday to Sunday. But we're all working on the same side for the same goal. Don't form groups based on who you get on with and who you don't. Groups based on what your preferences are. If you don't agree with what someone's doing, talk to them. Don't talk about them behind their back. Let's speak the truth in love. That's the way to maintain our unity. If a leader makes a mistake, and we will, take them aside and tell them. Do what Priscilla and Aquila did for Apollos. Give them the chance to listen, to change, to improve so that we can all serve God's people better. Now let me just say, I I don't think it's a a huge problem for us here at Ashfield. I think we do a pretty good job at being united, at least as far as I'm aware. But let's make sure we keep doing that. Keep loving one another and speaking the truth to one another so that we can finish well. 
You see, there are much more important things for us to be focusing on than what our preferences are or who we're like or dis, uh, not, not, uh, who, who we're not alike with. Much more important things than whose side we're on. You see, there's a lot of work for us to be doing. You see, all around us, just in Ashfield and Croydon and Burwood, there are over 150,000 people. The suburbs that we live in, the suburbs that you drive through to get to church, 150,000 people, and there are maybe 150 of us. Most of those 150,000 are not Christian. In fact, most of them don't live anywhere near a Christian. Most of them don't even know a Christian. Now, that's what's important. You see, what was true about Corinth is true for us here in Ashfield. God's promise to Paul, Act 18 9, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. You see, that's, what, that's what's important. That's what we need to unite over. That's how we need to finish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be a people who are united around the message that we have, the message of the Lord Jesus, that people would hear him and respond to him in repentance and faith. Lord, we pray that you would grow us in unity and love and a proclamation of the gospel, and may more people come to know Jesus. Amen.